Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Greetings and salutations to everybody out there in podcast land. This is the Judo Chop Suey Podcast, and I'm your host, Judo Dave Roman, coming back at you from a new room in my home from the Florida Panhandle, coming at you in your headphones, car speakers, and wherever else you want to listen to me, I really appreciate it. On this episode of the Judo Chop Suey Podcast, I am going to have the executive director and the head coach for the Northwest Territories, Mr. Josh Hagan. Now, if that name is familiar to you, Josh was one of the people who was on the Canadian Broadcasting Company's judo coverage during the Olympics. He was one of the announcers. So if you guys like me had to use a VPN and had to listen to Canada's stream, And if you heard another fellow that was not Neil Adams, well, it was Josh. So I'm going to talk to him about his thoughts on the Olympics and and really his impressions on on, uh, his experiences uh, being a commentator for one of the biggest global events that we we have in the world. So Canada is is in the house for this episode. So we're going to be talking a lot about judo in Canada and judo Canada, specifically also the results of the Canadian national team at the Olympics, which I said before in my last episode, I think they had a great Olympics, quite frankly. So I'm really excited to share this interview with you. Now, there's a couple of things that I want to cover uh, before I get to the interview with Josh. First things first, I'm recording in a new room. If you hear a lot of reverb, I apologize. I didn't realize the acoustics would be so terrible in here. So I'm really trying to do my best in trying to get you the best audio quality that I can with the setup that I have. My setup looks pretty pathetic. I'm not even going to take a picture and share it on my Instagram, which is at La Vida Judoka. Because the phone blocks that I have lined up around here, it's just not working. I can hear the reverb in my headphones. I am going to do my best in post-editing to to get the echo out as best as I can. But I'm sorry, guys. Just for this episode, you just, you're just going to have to live with it. Now, I will have an after party in this episode. Uh, there's a lot that I want to discuss in the after party. But before I get to the interview with Josh, there's something that I want to bring up here. And this is going to be more for my uh, listeners in the United States. And before I get into this topic, I want to make it perfectly clear 
that I'm going to approach this topic with a sense of seriousness and respect. Because I know years ago I might have gone off on a topic like this, kind of half-cocked, you know, uh, drunk on whiskey or whatever. And actually right now I'm sipping on a nice glass of scotch whiskey. Let me just take a sip right here. Ah, very nice. Where was I? Yeah, so years ago I might have gone off half-cocked on a subject like this, but I'm going to treat this with uh, a sense of respect and care as much as I can while trying to stick to the facts. So with that, what the heck is going on with the United States Judo Association? You know, I got to say, with some of the things that I've been reading and hearing and have been conveyed to me, a former Olympian uh, and, and retired Senator Ben Nighthorse Campbell once said that politics in Washington, D.C. inside the Beltway is nothing compared to politics in American judo. And I tell you what, if half of what has been conveyed to me with the, the USJA is true, I, that, that statement by, by Ben Campbell is spot on. Now, I want to make it perfectly clear that I am not taking sides here. This is, this is really not my deal uh, in, in terms of taking sides. But what I do want to do is offer my listeners, my American listeners, who may be members of the USJA, to have a clear understanding of what is being alleged here. Because I think it's important if you are a paying member of an organization, you have a right to know what is being said, what is not being said, what allegations are out there. At least that's how I feel about these type of things. You should know what's going on with your organization and you should have the right to vote either way with your money and whether you not you want to support the organization. I'm not saying that you should not support the organization. I'm not saying that you should support the organization. But I do think that members should know exactly what's going on with the organizations that they send annual fees to and other fees, belt promotion fees and paying for books and things like that. You should know. So that's what I'm here for. And I have no doubt some people won't like me talking about this, but you know what? It's what I got a podcast for. I can talk about whatever I want to talk about on my podcast. And damn it, I'm going to talk about this. So here are some of the allegations that I have been hearing that have been conveyed to me about some of the situation that's happening with the USJA. So alleged, I'm just going to say it out, just allegedly, the current board of directors of the USJA were never elected into their positions. And there hasn't been an election in eight years, which I really don't understand how that's possible because the former president of the USJA, John Pacioni, uh, he was, I thought he did a pretty good job just as an outsider looking in. So if there hasn't been an election in eight years, how, how did John become the president of the USJA? I, I kind of, I find that very confusing. So to me, that must mean that over the past eight years, instead of board members being elected, that they were appointed in some way. And perhaps they were appointed until a proper election could be had. But again, how, how is it that a proper election could not be had in eight years? And let me, let me make this perfectly clear. It's quite possible that I am misunderstanding some of the things that have been conveyed to me and some of the things that have been posted. I'm just a messenger, so don't shoot me. So what else? There is now a new 
head of the election committee. Apparently, the the the, the previous head of the election committee was fired, relieved of their du- of their duties, whatever you want to put it. And that head of the election committee is now Felipe Morotti, and he's of uh, he's a head sensei of Hollywood Judo, which is to Tommy talk. What's up, guys? Hope you're all doing well. Love your podcast. Now, I assume they probably can't talk much about this because they are USJA members themselves and they now their head sensei is is in a a, a significant p- capacity on at the USJA so i can't imagine they can talk much about this but i'm going to talk a lot about this so here's a crazy thing apparently the USJA lost their 501c3 status and it was lost due to due to not filing the proper paperwork with the IRS, I guess. And now the the USJA is listed as a not-for-profit company in the state of Florida. And they also have a mailing address in New Jersey at some UPS store in New Jersey. And um, where was it? Merrick, New York or New Jersey, something like that. So truth be told, I don't know much about the difference between not-for-profit status and 501c3, but it seems that there is a difference. You can be not for a non-profit corporation but not have a 501c3 status. Now, as I mentioned before, their mailing address is in is in Merrick, New Jersey. I'm sorry, New York. Why do I keep saying New Jersey? I don't know why. So yeah, but their mailing address, not their mailing address, their main address, the address listed as the corporate address is in Cape Coral, Florida, which is the address is the Kodokan Judo of Cape Coral, which is kind of odd because that's John Pacioni's dojo. So I don't know if John is is currently a member of the board of the USJA, and but but as it stands right now, the mailing address is in Merrick, New York. The so-called offices are in Cape Coral, Florida. And I don't know, maybe it's always been that way. I just find that a little unusual. I guess I always assumed that the USJA had a designated office somewhere. If I if I wanted to visit the USJA one day, the main office, where would that be? I, di- I always thought that there was a separate office somewhere, not and it was not somebody's uh, club. And the USJA is now listed as a not-for-profit company in the state of Florida. That, that, that Those are public records, so I'm not saying anything here that is not public records. Now, it seemed that the loss of the 501c3 status and the new listed address for the USJA all happened around May of last year. And something else that, that happened that's pretty a serious allegation is that the, um, the organization lost their insurance and they're currently looking for another insurance provider. Now, according to the USJA, they have a new carrier has been identified. So I don't know if that a new carrier being identified, if that means that there has been a lapse in coverage for its members. But it seems to me that there is a distinct possibility that if you're a member of the USJA and they lost their insurance coverage uh, because the insurer wouldn't cover combat sports, at least that's what they're saying, that it's possible that you might not currently have coverage. I don't don't hold me to that. That's allegedly, but it's still a concerning prospect because the whole point of being part of a national governing body, at least in this country, is for rank and for insurance. Now, the biggest issue, the biggest sticking point for many of the disgruntled members that are out there 
is the voting process for the new board. So it's my understanding that according to the USJA bylaws, the voting needs to take place via mail-in ballots. But for this election, the voting is going to be done via email, via uh, by means that are online. So I don't think they're going to go to a website, but I believe that people who are members will be receiving an email with a with a unique link that will allow you to uh, vote in the USJA elections. Now, to me, we're in the 21st century. I think it makes a lot of sense to have voting done uh, by email. But to me, if such a stipulation is not explicitly stated in the bylaws, it probably shouldn't happen that way. Because you know what? In my opinion... If a person agrees to become a member of any organization, and that organization has a list of rules and governance on how that organization will be run, it's not an unfair expectation that people stick to those bylaws. Now, again, I don't have them in front of me. I can't say explicitly one way or another if the bylaws do allow for mail-in voting, or I mean online voting. But if it doesn't, that is an issue of concern, I would think, for USJA members. Now, it's such a concern for some members that legendary judoka and sensei uh, Jim Bregman started a GoFundMe to help pay for legal fees to combat the current board in a court of law. Now, for the other side of this, the USJA recently responded to all of this uh, uh, in a newsletter slash email slash posting on their website, uh, which was down for a number of days, which was surprising. The USJA.net website was down, uh, allegedly because they didn't pay the person, uh, they couldn't pay the person who runs the site what he was owed, so the site was brought down. Again, allegedly. All right, so that said, the USJA did respond on their website. And some of the highlights is that the uh, the USJA has hired a law firm of Mich- uh, Mickelman and Robinson representing them pro bono, which I got to say, that's really tough for Jim Bregman and anybody on that side of the debate because while Mr. Bregman is trying to raise money for legal fees, uh, the USJA has got a pro bono attorney on their side. Also in that newsletter, there is a new opening for the chair of the Coast and Judo Committee. I guess uh, uh, Dr. Roddy Ferguson had stepped down. Uh, The elections, according to the USJA, are happening starting on September 15th uh, at midnight. I'm not sure which time zone at midnight. All the way through uh, September 30th, uh, ending at 11.59 p.m. So it's pretty evident... Whatever some of the members are saying, that the USJA are moving forward with email voting. They also ask members to be patient with answers to questions, as there are only certain things that they can discuss due to threats of litigation. They also announced a new website called USJA.us, but when I went there, it says it's under construction, and there's a nice picture of a lounge chair. I'm I'm not sure what the purpose of this site is. Maybe it was an alternate site that they started to spin up when the main site went down, but now that the main site is up, I I don't know what they're, I don't know why they would announce that USJA.us site, especially when uh, the site, the the main USJA site was up before this, before September 1st. And they also announced uh, the the USJA, USJF Nationals, which already took place. 
uh, I believe that was also in Cape Coral. I did see some pictures on there on the USJA uh, Instagram page, and it seemed like they had a decent turnout and a nice tournament. But I don't know anybody that went there personally. So the USJA response, the public response, was pretty thin on details, which is to be expected. And unfortunately, you know, when you're thin on details as an organization, there's a lot of room for interpretation as to what's really going on. And when you have a group of people on one on the other side of the debate that don't really have to worry about what can and can't be said, that side of the debate ends up getting uh or I should say that side of the debate ends up having a louder voice. Now, here's the bottom line for me. There is really a lot of people on both sides of this issue that have a vested interest in the USJA, especially those old school life members, people that have been members, life members of the USJA for over 30 years. I mean, so much support, so much money, so much love for an organization and so much belief for, for what the organization stands for. And to, to, to see it this way, it, it really is a shame. I, I just think that, well, for starters, the pandemic probably played a huge role in the current state of affairs for the USJA. As it is, USA Judo's membership was cut in half because of the pandemic. And I got to believe the USJA faced similar issues. So, you know, I, I guess I just really feel bad for all of the members that are out there, especially the, the people that volunteered hundreds of hours of their time and uh, probably thousands of dollars over the years in making sure the USJA exists. And it's ultimately the members that are harmed in, in all of this. Whatever, whatever the truth is, and I believe it's somewhere in the middle, the membership suffers. You know, and, and while I understand that the USJA has to be very careful with what they say and how they respond publicly, there is still, in general, a, a, a lack of transparency from, from where I'm sitting. And I'm sorry to say, again, I'm just a guy sitting behind a microphone, just looking from the outside, looking in. But I really don't have a clear idea of what the vision is for the USJA moving forward. And I, I would say the same thing for for really most of the other judo organizations except for AAU judo. And I know that sounds like an advertisement. It's not, believe me. So with the email of of voting happening over the next two to three weeks, people are going to be elected into their positions. And then what? Maybe that all has to be decided before a change can be made and and a clear vision is, is given for the USJA. But honestly, I I don't, I don't know what, what would be next. Is it just going to be, really the same old things that's been happening for years and years and years. I mean, that's that's not necessarily a bad thing. But to me, it really looks like a lot of people clamoring for titles, positions, seats on boards, influence. And honestly, I really don't know to what end. And I really hope I'm wrong about that. Now, I got to give credit where credit's due that, uh, you know, the previous president, John Pacioni, did start the Kosen Judo division uh, in USJA tournaments. And that's a refreshing change of pace. And maybe new ideas like that are in store for the future of the USJA. Perhaps the people that are attempting to get on these positions are truly looking to make fundamental differences uh, in, in judo in the United States. And being in this position would allow them to make those changes. 
So the bottom line for me, I do not want to see the USJA fail. I really don't. And now I'm probably at least 15 minutes in on this topic. And just just to close things out, I encourage all of my American listeners to do your own research. Find out what's really going on and, and make a choice. I mean, you could you could choose to support the USJA. You could choose to support uh, Jim Bregman's GoFundMe. Or you can choose to not support either. All right, so I want to move on to my interview. The rest of this podcast is going to be all about Canada. Oh, Canada, our home and native land. You know, I actually think the Canadian national anthem is the most beautiful national anthem in the world. I I really believe that. And with that, I am very excited to bring on the executive director and head coach of the Northwest Territories for Judo Canada, Mr. Josh Hagan. Josh, welcome to the Judo Chop Sui podcast. How are you doing this evening? I'm great. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to, for having you uh, on this. I know you reached out to me, but um, I I was really impressed with your work during the Tokyo Olympics. And, and we're going to get into that uh, uh, a little bit later in the interview. But first, I want you to tell the, the listeners who you are and and what your experience in judo is and what your current role is with Judo Canada. Sure. So um, I'm from a really small town in Ontario in Canada. It's like 2,700 people. So I'm the baby of five kids. So two of my older brothers started doing judo. So I was allowed on the mats at about three and a half. And we used to travel all over the province, like a lot of Americans do, travel all over the place to try to get to judo because we started competing at a young age. We were highly competitive and, and there wasn't a lot of judo locally. Uh, so at about 17, I moved to a city called Hamilton, half a million people. And then I went from, from there to the National Training Center in Montreal, which at the time was in a private club um, by Hiroshi Nakamura, who famously coached Nicola Gill. Nicola Gill became the head coach of Canada, uh, Olympic silver medalist, Olympic bronze medalist, multiple time world, world yes, medalist. Of course. Now the CEO of Judo Canada. So he was the head coach when I was there. And that was early 2000s, 2003, 2002, 2003, that kind of range. I was there for two years. And then at the end of that time, I just felt like I wasn't progressing enough in judo. And I've always been very much a student of wanting to learn um, as, as an athlete or, or in any aspect of life, I guess. And I got to know Jason Morris in my last year in Montreal. And I was trying to decide if I was going to continue doing judo. I was around 22, 23. And Jay said, well, if you're going to quit anyways, why don't you come down to my place and stay with me? So I moved in with Jason in September around 2004, 2005. Oh, nice. And I lived there and I lived there for a year, one season, September to June and, uh, and trained with him full time at his dojo. And at that time, there was some people like Justin Flores was there. Travis Stevens moved there while I was there. Nick Del Popolo was training there full time. So some really high level Chinooka, uh, while I was there. Um, and then I stopped competing after that year and I got into coaching a couple of years later, like really heavy. When I was about 27, I started coaching a lot. And I coached at a number of private clubs in Toronto. And then from that, I, where people started to recognize me as I started to run one private club, which was called the Art of Balance Dojo. And just to promote the club, I started producing a lot of content online because I needed people to find me on Google. And I didn't want to just write, I didn't want to just write blogs about what is judo and how did judo start? Because that's been written a thousand times and those are really great, but we've seen it a million times. So just out of, what I felt I could give a voice. I started writing 
on things that I thought were interesting topics. And that's where people started to sort of recognize me. My blog got read in over, well over a hundred countries and, and I started doing um, videos, explainer videos or tutorials, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I was, I was an avid reader uh, and that's why I was so excited that you, you reached out to me because I, I really wanted I, I, where I was, I mean, when I found out that you were even willing to come on the podcast, I was like, yeah, this is great. Come, come on up because I, I've read a lot of your work online and I thought your, your approach to how you coach, at least what you explained in your blog and such was such a breath of fresh air. Um, it, I, I know I brought this up before. I want to bring it up again. I, I remember you talking, you, you wrote a blog about doing three person Uchikomi and I thought it was really, a really refreshing take because I, I think a lot of times, a lot of judo sensei, you know, recreational, even, even high level coaches, um, they, they get into this idea that, you know, we, we have to do certain movements or certain exercises because that's just how it's always been done. And, and I, when I read your blog on the three person Uchikomi, for example, I just thought it was a a refreshing perspective. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about just that particular, since I'm bringing it up, if you could tell them a little bit about what you, you know, what it is that you feel about that and, and how that relates to your approach to coaching. Sure. So in a lot of senses, I'm very much a traditionalist in that I, I, I really appreciate things that have done been done well for a really long time. And so when that happens, you can have really amazing things. And sometimes people are traditionalists in a sense that they want to follow a tradition for tradition's sake. And that's where I don't like that. <clears throat> if something doesn't make sense to me, then I shouldn't continue to do it. And so Paruchikomi is something that I saw my whole life, as most people have seen and done, and people have done in dojos around the world. It probably originated in Japan. Um, we've Everyone has seen videos of Japanese judoka doing it. So where where I stand is that when I look at it and I try to look at it objectively, not just as a, as a person that did judo and we did this as I go, okay, is this really beneficial for me? So we talk about the quality of judo and how difficult technique is to develop and how important that is. You need to be technically sound and proficient to be a great judoka. So we say, okay, well, one thing we can do is we can add someone on the back and then you're working on your technique. But while you work on technique, you're going to get stronger because someone else is holding them down. And I don't agree with this. Um, yes, you may potentially get stronger. How much stronger will you get? I'm not sure. It's not very easy to measure. And we know that there's lots of ways we can get stronger. We can get stronger by doing proper strength and conditioning exercises. We can get better cardio by the amount of randori that we do. But it doesn't seem like the most efficient way to get strong. And then the second thing is, is anyone that's done power Uchikomi can tell that there's definitely, if not all the time, there's definitely been times where you alter your technique because someone's holding onto their back. So if you're altering your technique because someone's holding onto their back, then that's not the most efficient way to do the throw. Right. So you're bastardizing the technique to get stronger. I don't want to do anything at the cost of technique. And so, <clears throat> so I, I made a very strong stance that I think it's, it's, if there is any benefit, it comes at a huge cost, and I never want to affect the technical development of an athlete. Get strong, do your um, nagikomi, and get parichikomi out of here. And it's a very controversial stance, and not everyone agrees with me. But um, I've, I, I, the other thing is, is as a person that believes highly in efficiency of judo, is if someone was to make a very strong argument that this was a beneficial practice, and they could convince me I would start doing it tomorrow, otherwise I'm a bad coach. 
Of course, complete, completely understood. Now, you had brought up earlier, be, because you've gotten into coaching, you had the Art of Balance Dojo, which again, I'm familiar with that because I've, I've been following your work for, for a number of years. <clears throat> but you are now the executive director and head coach of the Northwest Territories for Judo Canada. Could you explain, you know, how long did you coach at the Art of Balance Dojo? How did you build up that program? And what happened, or not really what happened, why did you make this jump to become the executive director and head coach of the Northwest Territories? Sure. So um, I was teaching at a number of clubs and I was teaching full time. And as many people know, it's a hard way to make a living. And and I decided to, um, I also started a company called Matsudo Canada with Sergio Pessoa. And um, I sold my half of the company. I used that money to build a large facility, a high performance facility in Toronto, which is very expensive. It was a very big building. So I ran that program for a number of years. During that time, me writing these blogs also led to me working for a company in Sweden, which we can probably get to after. Uh, So I was doing side jobs to keep the business operational. And it was this big cost, but I could finally build a full-time high performance dojo. So I ran kids programs as well, but I really was motivated to, my goal was to create an Olympic champion from my dojo. Right. And um, so I started doing that and we had a lot of, a lot of success. And um, The cost of operating was very high as well as um, COVID happening right around that period of time at the end of the dojo. And I saw this position available for the executive director and head coach of the territory. And I thought it sounded like a pretty fantastic opportunity and a, a place to live. It's, for, for people that don't know, people that aren't Canadian that are listening to this, the Northwest Territories is in line with Alaska. So if you go to Alaska and you head east for, you know, maybe 2,000 kilometers or, I don't know, 1,200 miles, something like this, and you're in the Northwest Territories, it's approximately twice the size of Texas with a population in the whole territory of about 45,000 people. And what was especially exciting about this opportunity is they had just con- um, landed a contract to have judo as part of their school structure in a nine school district. So part of the school curriculum, I would get to oversee that as well as other judo programs throughout the territory. And it was, um, it was a much, it was a standard pay. It's not me trying to work a private dojo to my, to myself. It's a, it's like a full-time position. And so the opportunity to oversee a large uh, number of dojos rather than one to help uh, build judo in the territory sounded very exciting to me. Yeah, that, that, that sounds amazing. Now, so this is a full-time position for you. That would lead me to believe that Judo Canada's finances are in pretty good shape. And I, I, you probably, I know you're not like the the CFO of Judo Canada and such, but, but I I would imagine that you could talk to the, to to the strength of the finances a little bit that, I mean, if, if they've got somebody in your position doing something like this as a paid professional, I would imagine right. for the other Canadian territories, there's somebody of equal, uh, a similar position as well, correct? Right. So how it works in Judo Canada is Judo Canada has their division and they operate. Now they oversee and structure much like USA Judo oversees other places and everyone sort of falls under that structure. I know it's a little complicated because you guys have different uh, associations, but we have one association only um, and they sort of oversee everything. Now, some provinces are have been able to create their own structure. So I'm not paid by Judo Canada. I'm paid by the territory. And part of the reason that I have the job is because of this school system. So there's government funding in the Northwest Territories. It's 
It's um, they want to support judo and they want to support people being active. So we're sort of a subset of judo Canada. I'm not technically part of their, um, their funding structure or part of their, their salary structure. My salary comes from the territory and the territory of the government, but they oversee it and they oversee the rest of the country. A number of provinces in Canada have full-time coaching staff and full-time positions. So Ontario judo has two full-time coaches, full-time. The province of Alberta has multiple full-time coaches and they have a regional training center. The province of British Columbia, again, has a, a similar thing. They have a full-time head coach and executive director. Um, Quebec has multiple coaches. I two coaches, I believe, and about five people that are full-time staff. And then you have the Judo Canada structure again, which is very different than, than USA Judo. Um, I believe it is right now. I think it's five full-time coaches paid are part of Judo Canada. So that's Sasha McMedovich and Janusz Pulowski and uh, Alex Simon and JP Kenton. So there's a number of full-time staff and our structure sort of works like a, a funnel. So you have people that are, can sort of train anywhere and up to a certain period of time. And once you become a carded or government funded athlete and you become a certain age, like 1920, you sort of have to move to Montreal. And that's where we have one center that everyone is driven towards. Okay. So, so that's in have, Montreal. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Yes. I, I never knew yeah. that. Yeah. So that's, that's place. So that's where everyone is. So our entire national team outside of the odd case, Krista Deguchi, Kyle Reese, they're in Japan, but the, our, our talent pool is all in one place and it's very structured how they run their geo program. Fascinating. So in your role, so you, it seems like you have two hats here, executive director and head coach. Can you speak to right. maybe the, the, the high level overview of what each of those roles entail? I know head coach, sure. it seem a little obvious, but maybe executive director, not, not so much. Could you speak to those two roles? Right. So the executive director position, obviously I'm overseeing all aspects of the territory. So we have a board of directors that I answer to, and that's who hired me. And then I oversee the operation of the whole thing. So help, I help try to find more funding so we can additionally add programs. There's a lot of um, a large indigenous community. So there's also a lot of people that don't have a lot of money up there and isolated communities. So I apply for things like grants to, so that people don't have to buy judo uniforms. We give those away to a lot of the people that do judo when we're talking to a different school district about trying to get judo as part of their curriculum, then that's a conversation that I'll have and try to work out a way that it can work for them um, to get judo in their school system and work for us so that we can financially afford the coaching staff to do it. So that's a lot of the executive director position. And then the head coaching position obviously is develop the curriculum, oversee the staff that's running the programs, oversee the athletes, help them with their judo programs as well as their strength and conditioning programs. So that's the, the real judo position. And then you have the oversight and helping to just build the, the organization in general, try to create more judoka. And now you are also uh, creating programs for judo in schools in the Northwest territories, correct? Right. Yeah. How do you manage the, the, what I would think to be in such a large territory with such few people, the, the coaching deficit, because I think, right. You know, in the United States, I, I think there is a there aren't enough judo coaches, but in, in somebody in your position, there would even be less per capita. So how how would you be able to grow a, a, a judo program in schools in such a large area with such a low population? Right. So I have a couple 
um, of staff. One is totally volunteer and the other time are full-time coaches. So I have one coach named Amy Cotton, who was uh, an Olympic athlete, actually took fifth at the world championships. So she oversees the school program. She coaches so many hours and goes to these nine schools and teaches to go in the school. So we have additional hours that we can charge that other coaches go and fill in. So I oversee that program and I support her any way I can with if she's having difficulty running the program or how she might do things more efficiently. Then we have judo in the capital called Yellowknife. So we have judo there and we're expanding into those schools in the region. And I have a technical director and, and uh, assistant coach who helps me do that. We'll be traveling to, to towns and cities, I guess you could say, that are three and four hours away. And I oversee that program. And then we have a judo, a dojo that's very far north in a town called Anuvik, which is literally just south of the Arctic Ocean. And we have a program up there. So I sort of oversee all of them. I'll travel to these places periodically and I'll help support them in building the programs as well as our entire curriculum will be, has been revamped and we'll be putting it all on video so that coaches that are less experienced that are trying to help or, or up and coming coaches or, or athletes themselves will have video for them so that if they're like, oh, I want to teach this technique, but this is difficult, we'll have video breakdown to help support them in, in, um, in teaching what, what we'd like them to teach and what we think is the most efficient way to create not just high performance judoka, but people just to have fun. Sure. Kids programs as well. Yeah. Which, which is which is very important, which, you know, I'm, I'm very big on that. Now, what now I don't know much about Judo Canada. What is the minimum requirements to be a, a coach at any level the, at the at the right. lowest level in, in Judo Canada? Uh, or maybe it's different per territory. I don't I don't know. Could you speak to that? Right. So Canada. um we have uh, many things here are really structured, which is really nice in a lot of ways. Sometimes it can be a little annoying or difficult, but for the most part, it's, it's a, a really great system. So in Canada, you cannot get your black belt, for instance, from your sensei. You get it from the province. So Geo Canada sees it that provinces or territories can give black belts. So that's how you get your black belt. So you have to go to a grading with a certain number of high enough level belts, black belts, to, to, to do the grading. The province says, okay, we think you did a good enough job. They send that information to Judo Canada and Judo Canada basically just stamps that. But they, they make sure that they think the system is good enough in every province or territory to do so. So I got my black belt from the province of Judo Ontario, not from my sensei at the time. And the Judo sure. Canada signs off. Um, so that's the first thing. You have to be a black belt or to be a full sensei or um, head coach. Now, at lower belts, you can help and assist things like that. So that's stage one. The second stage is we have something called the National Coaching Certification Program, which is a requirement to oversee. And it involves, number one, police checks, uh, but also it involves a lot of things like not sexy for judo, but uh, a lot of things about safety, how to do things in a safe way to make sure that you have rules in place to protect athletes. And so everyone has to be uh, certified by the National Coaching Certification, which oversees all Olympic sports. So if you want to be a swimming coach, you have to be an NCCP level certified coach. If you want to be a, a judo coach, same thing. Everyone has to do these things. And so you have to be certified by the NCCP as well as be a black belt to be a head coach in, in the country of Canada. How has COVID, uh, the COVID pandemic impacted yourself personally and your club? I know you talked briefly that that COVID was a big reason why you, you moved on to this new position, but just Canada as a whole in terms of judo or in just regular everyday life, how has COVID impacted you and, and the rest of the country and, and the judo world up there? 
Right. Well, in Canada, COVID has been, uh, has we've locked down a lot more. So more in the terms of like a, a New Zealand or an Australia. So there was a huge period of time where people really couldn't do judo here at all. It's starting to open up again now. <clears throat> but basically people haven't been able to do judo in Canada in most of the country the entire time. The national coaching, the national program out of the INS or Montreal, that was able to operate in a very small amount, a small number of athletes in Montreal. But outside of that, dojos haven't been open for a year and a half, two years. So that's really been devastating to judo. I'm hoping it's going to rebound and I'm hoping that the success that we had at those Olympics is going to help with the enthusiasm for that. But um, I have students that I used to teach in Toronto that haven't been on the mats in two years. Wow. And they're of that 19, 20 years of age. One of my athletes actually went to Texas named Solomon Toronto. He went to Texas and trained with uh, Nick Del Popolo for about six months this spring, winter, spring. But uh, yeah, most of my athletes haven't been able to train at all, which is pretty, pretty tough. Yeah, that, that, that's really unfortunate. Obviously, <laughs> I, don't, I don't have to tell you things are a little bit different in the United States. I'm sure you right. see the headlines. Yes. but um, Yes, a little different. Yeah, but but that's 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 really unfortunate. I'm I'm pretty sure I I saw your 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 uh, your your student uh, training with Nick uh, on his Instagram. I'm I'm sure I'm sure I've seen it over the past six months. So I I've got no doubts there. Now I wanted to talk uh, uh, a bit about the Olympics. Now for myself, I don't know if you heard you listened to my last episode at all, but a lot of viewers in the United States wanting to watch judo had a real problem with NBC and the Mm -hmm. Peacock app. So many people in the United States had to watch judo using VPNs and watching streams in other countries. For myself, I watched some streams in Japan and I watched some streams coming out of uh, Canada. And one day, uh, Neil Adams was making the call and I, and then uh, the day that I was watching the, I believe the under 90 kilo division, um, it was you. I, I like, right. I, I didn't know. I, at first I didn't know who, who it was making, you know, calling the matches, but then I, right. I did some digging around and found that it was you. How did you get that job? I, it, I, I think it's fascinating to me that, you know, somebody running their own dojo, um, and, and who's a head coach in the Northwest territories gets, gets an opportunity with, with, uh, the CBC, correct? Is it, do I have yes. that right? Gets yep. that opportunity. How, how did you get that opportunity? Uh, so it's an interesting sort of story and it's, it's sort of a funny thing of how everything in my life has sort of come to a funny, um, it's things just happen to line up in a funny way. So. A guy that was a training partner of mine, a really great guy, is a guy named Fraser Will. So Fraser Will, if you follow judo a lot or follow Canadian judo, was seventh place at the Beijing Olympic Games for Canada, 60 kilos. He's one of the best guys you could ever meet. And so he was hired after those Beijing Games to commentate the 2012 Olympic Games by the CBC. In 2016, for whatever reason, the CBC decided not to have a commentator. And then in 2020, they went, we see a world champion and Krista Deguchi and some other people with results. We definitely want a Canadian commentator commentating these games. And so they reached out to Fraser and said, are you, um, are you available? Fraser now has a young family. He hasn't been involved with judo since. And he said, um, I, I'm not really plugged into the judo community, but a really good friend of mine is the guy that you need to see. You need to talk to him. He's the best person for the job. And so 
uh, as I was saying, I've been producing content to promote my dojo to try to um, get people to know that I exist, the club exists, which led to uh, me producing even more content because a, a company called Athlete Analyzer based in Sweden, it works with the Swedish national team and the Brazilian program and all these things. They hired me as well to help produce content for them to promote the idea of, of diving into how you can use statistics and how you can create statistics to get better at judo. So I was producing a lot of content for a period of time. So they looked at the content that I created, teaching techniques, um, analyzing matches, and they saw, okay, he clearly knows what he's doing. So they hired me in to come to the studio. And uh, they said, we'd like you to audition for the part. Of course, I'd love to. So I came into the CBC studio, downtown Toronto. They had a commentator come in. So it was the pair of us. We commentated four matches. One was Shiraz Adashvili's World Final. Another was a Canadian, Kalita Zupancic. So I commentate these four matches with someone else in there. And it was quite, a, quite an interesting situation of never doing that before in that kind of setting. And you're commentating a match and someone's talking in your ear and you're trying to explain judo to the general audience. Right. And, after we, yeah, and after we did the fourth match, the, she's an executive producer. She came in the room and was visibly excited about what we had done. And that was fantastic. And if you get the job, quote unquote, this is the time this will happen and this will happen. And we're really looking forward to having you. So I was hired last March. The games were obviously delayed. And then they reached out to me in the winter and said, are you still interested in doing this? And I said, of course, but now I live in Yellowknife, not in Toronto. So you'll have to fly me in. And they said, yeah, that's not a problem. And so um, they, they uh, signed me up and brought me in for the games, you know, this July. That's really fantastic. Now, did you actually get flown to Tokyo or did you call the action watching on monitors? Right. So for because of COVID, there was only two sports that they actually sent them to Tokyo. Um, that was swimming. Canada's quite did quite well in swimming and track and field, which we obviously did very well with Andre de Grasse. So they sent commentators for those two sports. Every other sport was based in Toronto, which was a very cool thing because of the people that I got to talk to and have conversations with the other commentators, uh, as well as the athletes. Like uh, I got to meet Carol Hyun, who I spoke to at length. She was her first time calling the games. She was the Beijing Olympic champion at minus 48 kilos in wrestling, London Olympic bronze medalist, 48 kilos, Adam Creek, who's an Olympic champion in rowing. Um, so I got to hang out with these people because they all were in Toronto. So it made for a pretty incredible experience that way. Wow. That, that's awesome. So when you did your audition, did you have any previous experience calling live action like that? No, I had done a couple videos that I, um, I forget what I even called it now in hindsight, but I had done some videos where I was breaking down matches at a very, I'll say high level, like a high performance level. So one that I broke down was um, Abe Hafume against uh, Mongolian Davidorj, I believe. And, and I made a video sort of breaking down for people that weren't high performance judoka, why people are doing certain things, but that wasn't live, but it was a match breakdown. I did that. I did one for Saggy, uh, for Said Mulai against Frank DeWitt as well, where I broke down yeah. sort of in a high level way. Why um, Said Mulai at the time wasn't a world champion and Frank DeWitt was ranked number one in the world when I made that video as yeah. to why Said could outperform him. So I'd done that kind of thing where I was breaking down matches, but not in a live context this way. Well, I, you know, like I said before, I thought you did a tremendous job. I, you, you sounded like a seasoned pro calling the matches. Now, did the producers want you to call matches a certain way? Did they want you to use maybe 
move away from Japanese terminology and 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 because I I mean you it seemed like you did a little bit of both. I don't know if you were coached to do that or asked to do that, or if that was just something that you was your own spin on your broadcasting style. Right. So the um, having watched judo my whole life, you're always disappointed when you feel like the judo the judo analyst or the judo commentators aren't speaking to judoka. Right. So so that was my own personal feelings is I want them, I want to feel like they're not only talking to everyone else. And then the second thing is, is the majority of the audience at the Olympics is the, is the general audience that doesn't know judo. Right. So when we were doing the audition, I said, what do you guys think of this idea of me basically typically using the English naming first and then saying the Japanese term after, because the first thing you hear is what you, so if if the first thing I say is, so they said and you happen to be a random Joe from, Michigan, you might not know what I'm saying. Right. So what I typically say is beautiful shoulder technique. We call that Sodi Sodi Komigoshi. That way, I noticed you said that. I noticed that you did it in that way during during the contest, and that's that's precisely why I brought this up. Right, and, and they really liked that because then I'm talking to the judo audience, and then the second thing I want to do is go a little bit into detail um, without going overboard as to why a throw was successful or not successful because judo people might gain something from it. Cause not everyone that does judo is a high performance athlete as well as even the base audience. So it's, I didn't want to talk down to anyone. I wanted to sort of help educate everyone. And also I'm a very passionate Canadian, but a passionate judoka. So, um, I also wanted to show my enthusiasm for the matches. So where it's sort of a balancing act is you want to talk to everyone. And a lot of people don't know judo. And at the same time, you don't want the judo audience to think you're not speaking to them. So that's sort of the balancing act. And I think whether it was by accident or, or luck or by whatever, um, I got a lot of really good feedback from people outside of judo and, and people in the judo community seemed to really support it. So that was, that was a lot of fun. And what I did have going in and I got a lot of feedback during was I did have coaching, not on the content because they felt like, you're a pro, you know, judo, and you know how to talk about it. But there was, I did honestly have two coaches that coached me on how I could help show my excitement and keep my pace and talk to the audience in a way in a more general sense as a commentator. Now, what do you, what do you mean by pace in this context? Right. So the speed at which I speak so that I don't sound like I'm stumbling on the words, um, how I emphasize the words to help build the excitement and and display the passion that i'm feeling is how can i have that come across in an audio sense so if you turn the tv off it, can you tell if this match is exciting or not sure. so right so i got i got people that literally train commentators and they did that with me which they historically hadn't done and so i worked with them in that sense now again i'm sure i have lots of room to grow but um that was really beneficial yeah, like I said before, I thought you did, I thought you did great. Now, who was your who was your broadcast partner? I could not figure out who it was. I, I believe it was a lady. I, I don't know who it was. Could you could you fill yeah. me in? So um, again, she was put in a very difficult position. So she's a reporter for the CBC for Vancouver, the West Coast. That's her day to day job. She was a two time world champion and an Olympic athlete in synchronized swimming for Canada. And typically when she does the game, she works as a reporter. So she was told, you're going to do judo. And I know you've never seen it before, but you're going to commentate judo. So she, so it's obviously a very difficult thing. As anyone in judo knows, there is some uniqueness to judo and most people right. don't know it. So that was my broadcasting partner. And she, what she was really great about was 
helping me with my expectations. Judo was on for seven hours and it was eight days long. That's 56 hours of airtime. Yeah. I've never been on live TV before and I'm talking to the country. So she did a really good job of making me feel like I was doing a good job, which is important, you know, pumping the ego could be really good to performing yeah. well. You're right. And, and setting the expectation of, okay, this is when we'll be on. This is what we're going to do. When we throw to commercials, I'll take care of that. I'll introduce the matches. So she did a really good job of helping me create my pocket to speak. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I got to, you know, agree with that because I, I wasn't what I couldn't tell. I couldn't tell whether or not she was an experienced uh, judoka. I was leaning towards no. But as a broadcast team, I thought you both did a very, very good job. I was I was really yeah. impressed, and and really the the CBC's coverage of of judo was was just was just a godsend. Thanks to my VPN because uh, right, you know I thought I thought I would have hated to miss the action that I watched. So I right. gotta find out from you what did you think of the Olympics as a whole as uh, so, for judo? <clears throat> that, yeah, there's a few things that were really interesting. One is I mean, it's a different experience commentating it. Um, I felt like I barely saw any of the other Olympics because of Tokyo time. And so I was up in the middle of the night. So as a reference to how my day went, I would typically go to the studio at six uh, and start doing prep 6 p.m. Eastern. Yeah. We'd be on air at 10. We'd be on air until about 2 a.m. Then there'd be a two hour break. We do prep and then we go into finals and finals are 4 a.m. to 7 a.m. Yeah. So, and then you'd sleep for a few hours and there's a lot of adrenaline and excitement. So you didn't sleep that well. So that, that's how the sort of structure went. And uh, some of the days I'd only get one feed. So I would see both matches, both. I would just see the men's side for the semi for the prelims or the, or the women's side some days. And then the final block, we'd see every match. Yeah. And I was so excited just as a judo enthusiast. I was really excited to see Sai Mulai and Sagi Muki. Uh, those are two of my favorite Joka. Same here. Same here. Yeah. <laughs> They're so spectacular. And then George Fonseca is one of my favorite judoka. And then obviously Shadi El Nahas, who's a Canadian. And that was a great bronze medal match, sadly for Shadi. And myself as a fan of him, he, he lost that match. But that was a heck of a bronze medal match. Yeah, he was so overcome with emotion, too. And I, you know, I thought... I, I thought all of team, which I'll, I'll get to later. I thought all of Team Canada as a whole did really excellent in these Olympics. Right. But yeah, we'll, and we'll definitely the, get to that. Yeah, and then on the women's side, there were some athletes that I really loved. Like I'm a really big fan of Monk, that uh, 48 kilos from Mongolia. Uh huh. Yep. <clears throat> she has such spectacular nawaza. She's like a shark. If you hit the ground, she's on you so quick. She's so yep. good. And as a general rule, I have to say. Sometimes I'll watch a little bit more of the men's side than the women's side, just as a general rule, knowing the athletes and most of my athletes were men, but, uh, them on, as a general rule, the women's side, they're so quick to transition to Nawaza and so many of them have really strong Nawaza. That was one of my biggest takeaways is I was really impressed with the women's side, especially the transition to Nawaza. And there was a few athletes that I really loved. Sizik from France looked amazing and, yep. and, and the individual, the two women from Kosovo, Jakova and uh, Krasniki, were amazing. Mm-hmm. And the heavyweight Japanese woman, Sone, uh, her Ouchigari is just spectacular. Yeah, I, co- I completely agree. I, I saw, I thought, um, I, I was really, new. Sorry. Yeah, Abeg of course. just like a, a mega superstar. Like, she, she's, she's my favorite uh, to watch on the women's side. And she, she might even be my favorite judoka on the, the entire tour right now. She's just, 
I, I think what she's done in her career is is just as impressive as, as, as Teddy Renee, her fellow countryman. I, I just I, I think she's just, you know, when I when I watch some of these athletes, you know, Abe, really both Abe, right. Abe siblings, like Big Nenu, yeah. Renere, uh, you, you know, Wolf and, and just so many others. I, I I almost feel very fortunate you know, watching this, watching such great athletes, you know, kind of like, cause, cause I'm in my, my I'm in my mid forties. So I, I feel fortunate, like, you know, w- watching basketball, I, I grew up watching, you know, Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson. You just kind of get this, this sense of, this sense of appreciation that you're right. really watching some truly special athletes doing, accomplishing such truly amazing things. And, and I, I just, I really loved the Olympics. I, I I was just so enamored. Now I did not watch the preliminaries, but but the um, but just about every day of the final block was just just spectacular yeah, drama unfolding <laughs> on the mat, and and for you to have the opportunity to call it all, boy, you must have been exhausted. Seven hours plus. I mean, it was, yeah, it was, it was tough was... for me to get up for the final block. You had to do the prelims. Yeah, the, the one day in particular, there was a day that no Canadians fought, which was 90 kilos. And uh, 90 kilos, what was it, 70? Um, that day in particular, we had just won back-to-back medals, Canada. Um, by the way, on air, I definitely couldn't say we because we was CBC. I wasn't we as Canada, but uh, just a side note. But, uh, but that day, there was no Canadians fighting. And the final block, every match went nine minutes. There was the... Uh, the Russian semifinal, she went 16 minutes and 40 seconds. And at the end of that day, it was almost 8 a.m. when I got back to the hotel. And I was just drained, completely drained. And I'd been riding this emotional roller coaster of watching someone that I saw grow up in Arthur Margelli Don just miss a medal. Yeah. And then Canada get its first ever medal on the women's side in Plimke, which was so exciting. And then Sasha McMedovich, who is the head coach or one of the coaches for Canada who I've known since he was 13, knowing his relationship with Katrin Boschmi-Pinard, watching her take a medal the next day. Um, that was a really special moment for me personally and for knowing how special it was for them, how good their relationship is. That almost made me emotional on air, seeing them so happy for each other to right. get that bronze medal. So the next day, there's no Canadians. We've had two back-to-back medals, which you're riding high. And that day was my wall I'll say is at the end of the day, I went, Oh my God, like every match is 12 minutes long. And I've been doing this for four days already. And it's, you don't know what day of the week it is. Someone said, do you know what day it is today? And I said, it's day four. Like, I don't know you what day know, it is yeah. in July, <laughs> but it was some day and it was the fourth day of the game. So it was, uh, yeah, it was a, it was an emotional roller coaster to commentate it. And, you know, the other thing that feels really special to me is I know I'm not really a part of it, but to a degree, I called the first ever bronze medal match for a woman in judo in Canadian history. Oh, that, so that's, that's, yeah. that's a pretty amazing piece of luck. That, that really is. That really is great. That's, 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 that's fantastic. Speaking of which I would like your opinion. Now, Jessica Klim, Kate, Krista Gucci, it ended up working out for judo Canada. How did you feel Judo Canada handled that situation? And, and I believe in my last episode, I'd, I'd have to re-listen to it again. My my general right. feeling is that ultimately it worked out. I right. I wasn't sure personally. I wasn't sure of having 
the world champion be the, the, the world championships be the deciding factor was the best way to go about it. Right. But the right. fact that Clem Kate ended up with the bronze there, there's no guarantees with, with medals, just whether it was Clem Kate or Deguchi. So right. to me, you end up on the podium. You're, you, that's a win. That's a, that's a solid right. W for Canada. How did you feel about them canceling the, the, the one-on-one they were supposed to have and then using the world championships? How did you feel that went down? And did you feel that Judo Canada made the right decision? So outside of people that understand the process, it came across as controversial. For people that, are, that knew what the process was, it wasn't really controversial, actually. So the process for Canada is for any athlete, if you have two athletes taught, ranked in the top um, eight, they have to have a fight off to decide who goes to the Olympic Games. These two athletes are ranked number one and two in the world. They have been for two years. First, Jessica was ranked number one. Krista was ranked number two. Krista became world champion. She became ranked number one. So she's ranked number one. And Jessica's ranked number two. Krista lives in Japan. So to have a fight off, she'd have to come to Canada. If she comes to Canada, she has to do a two-week quarantine because of COVID. Right. So you can't have her sit around for two weeks, not do anything, and then have this three-fight matchup. So out in Canada, unlike Japan, it's not a best of one. It's a best of three. So then, okay, it's not really fair to have her sit quarantine for two weeks. They couldn't find a neutral site to do it. So they said, okay, well, whoever does better at the world gets to go. Chris is the defending world champion. She loses in the semifinal. Jessica wins. And there you have it. It's yeah. not, it wasn't really, they can't pick. That's the whole thing is they wouldn't ever say, we're just going to choose. It was the athletes will decide and it'll be decided by a fight off. And that's true with anyone. So Antoine Valois-Forche, who was ranked eighth in the world and mm-hmm. Etienne Priam is ranked like 16th, say somewhere in that range. If Etienne had gotten into the top eight, he was ranked fifth and, and Antoine was ranked seventh. The same situation would have happened. So it's very clear in our structure. It's, I, I think it's very fair to say athletes' performance is going to dictate it. And if we can't do a fight off, then the world is sort of a way that we can have it done. Sure. So I don't really think of it as controversial, and I'm happy it worked out. And um, Either one of those athletes had a great chance at winning, so it was very exciting that way. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, but if you just look at it from the outside, I can see how people went, oh, that's how, how do you just pick Jessica? What about Krista? But they didn't exactly – it wasn't a pick. It was – they set a standard, they informed both athletes when that couldn't happen. Okay. This is what we can do in place. They informed both athletes of this, both athletes said, okay. And then their performance dictated who got to go. And, you know, you brought up something that I honestly, when I just, when I first brought this up uh, after the world championships or, or even before it, um, it, it didn't occur to me that Krista Deguchi was not in Canada at the time. I thought right. that perhaps she was already training um, with the Canadian, you know, team in Montreal, Montreal, correct? Right, right. Yeah. I thought she was already there. I di- it didn't occur to me. I, I just didn't know. I, or if I knew, I forgot that right. that Krista was actually training in Japan. So the traveling and then the quarantine stuff was was an element of this of this story that I actually didn't know, or if I knew, I forgot. So either way I do. I, now I have a very different feeling about, it. I mean, it worked out anyway, but right. 
regardless it's gotta of be that, heartbreaking uh, for Krista right so that's the whole thing is for a yeah. huge athlete if either one misses out you go man like what a terrible thing and the other thing that I saw people say too as well that may not be as informed and this Olympics really highlighted as well as people went well can't one of them just change divisions okay well both of them are fit 57 athletes so neither one of these athletes looks like there's a lot of room to go down so neither one's making it down to 52 so that so that's not an option so they can't just switch to 52 and then the second thing is if either athlete was to just go okay i'll fight 63 they're not going to 63 to an empty division or someone who's no good the person in 63 katrin boschman Bernard, becomes yeah. an olympic bronze medalist she's formerly a junior world medalist twice she won a grand slam so you can't even get to qualify if you go up to 63. And then even if you did create a fight off position against Kat BP, who's to say you beat her? She's a great player in herself. So they're really stuck. At there, yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a good problem to have, to have two athletes, right. you know, that, that are tops in the world in, in, in that division. It's, it's, it's a, it's an amazing problem to have. It's, it's unfortunate that, uh, it's not a problem that that the United States has, but um, at the moment, yeah. at the moment, right? But uh, right. well, actually, you know, t- uh, <laughs> USA Judo had a really good showing at the Pan Ams. I mean, the, the right. juniors, anyway. I mean, that's you know, to, to get a good gauge on on what the future may look like, you got to look at the juniors and cadets, and boy, did they have a good showing! I, I was really impressed. Right. But uh, that, I'm, yeah, there's I'm one. Talk- there's one. There's one kid in particular that I know a little bit of. I've seen him compete a little. And he's trained with my student Solomon, which is Alex Knopf. And he looks like a real potential bright spot going yeah. forward. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you think this will play out um, for Paris in three years in, with between Klim Kate and Deguchi? I, 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 it would probably be the same process, correct? Right. So, I mean, it's exciting as a judo fan as well. Yeah. To see, like, yeah, I'm really excited to watch 2022 Worlds. Like, I don't know what they do. I don't think that Catherine Boschman Bernard has any plans on retiring. So again, you have the same scenario. You have three athletes in those two divisions, but realistically, that is doesn't seem to be an option. So you have two athletes that are ranked top two in the world. One won the 2019 Worlds, the other one the 2021 Worlds, and then medaled in the 2021 Olympics. 2020 yeah. technically, but um, sure. So yeah, it's really interesting. And the, the second thing is, is um, once someone has success. And they know they can do it. That only makes them better. So going into this year, Krista seemingly had Jessica's number. But now Jessica's a world champion and an Olympic medalist. So that is only going to make her more confident. So then you go, does that switch things? Like who's going to be more successful here? They're totally different in their style of judo. Jessica competes like few athletes in the world. She's so aggressive. Yeah. She often leads the pace of the match and uh, aggressive sometimes to a fault as we saw in the semifinal, but she's a, a great player. So then you go, okay, now you just made her more confident. How's that going to play out? Like uh, it's, it's just exciting to see. So yeah, I really, I mean, and they're only about a year apart. I think I believe Jessica's 24 and Krista's 25. Right. So uh, I think both of them should be around for Paris. So I, I would a, think so. So I, I, I think the it's next only three, three years, years away. It's only three years away. It's, it's, it's going to yeah. be really exciting to see. I, you know, Canada, boy, you, you guys have a tremendous program. You got tremendous athletes. What do you think makes judo Canada so successful? Because from, from where I'm sitting, 
you have to deal with the same type of traveling logistics and everything that that everybody else on this side of the world does. And right. and and I, I think, you know, apart from maybe Brazil, I mean, Canada, Canada's strong with judo and for right. a country that's so spread out, so large and not nearly has the population as United States or, or maybe even Brazil. How right. do you guys do it? What, what, what do you think a big, is a big part of this? Well, it's a sort of a funny thing. Like in hindsight, you look back at the success of the American team over the years, comparison to Canada. It's a good sort of reference. Very different in some ways, but you know, you guys had Michael Swain, who creates a first world champion in the States. We didn't have a world champion until 2019. You have Jason, you have Jimmy Pedro, you have all these people and not a ton, but you have a couple athletes at a time um, with, with huge amounts of success. And then immediately following, not immediately following Jimmy, but a little bit after Jimmy, you have, you have Travis Stevens, who's fighting for medals often, Marty Malloy, Kayla Harrison. And so you, did, you had this group that was really strong, but a small group. And so I'm not exactly sure where all of the American success came from, but you saw more success in the American system as a general rule than mm -hmm. the Canadian system. And then we weren't seeing a lot of success other than Nicola Gill and an, another um, Keith Morgan who took fifth at world, the fifth at Olympics, a great player. Yes. But we weren't getting many world Olympic medals outside of Nicola Gill. And then in 2012, Antoine Valois-Forche had a bit of a surprise medal for us. I, he was a very good player. We had another player that was very highly thought of in, in Sergio Pessoa. Sergio didn't have the result he was hoping in, in um, London. Antoine pulls this medal while our funding structure expanded significantly. From him getting that medal, we then got a, instead of a small dojo that we operated out of as a national training center, we got this beautiful full-time facility. There's a lot more money to have more coaching staff, to have athletes go to more events. So I would say a lot of it is connected to really the medal that was Antoine Valois-Forche's Olympic bronze medal in 2012, wow. which allowed us to expand our programs. That medal, that one medal expanded our program significantly financially. And then he only followed that up with world medals in, I believe, 2013 to 2014. Um, and then he didn't have the success he was hoping in 2016, again, a, a medal in 2019. And again, these world, these Olympics didn't go as well as he'd hoped, but on that medal, you started to see a lot more people with significant results. You started to see Arthur Mergelli Don get a lot of results. Yeah. You saw Kalidas Upanchic get some serious results, but not a medal. And then that sort of all came to one beautiful moment where Canada fought four medals at one games, which is more than ever. Yeah. Got two medals, which is more than ever, but I would really connect it heavily to the funding structure change that, that with there's a lot more money available for judo candidates to do a lot of the things that they couldn't do before so so that one bronze medal in, in 2012 the, the funding you're talking about it's coming from the government it, it, would that be fair to say or is this from yeah, private a lot of, funds a lot of other people a is lot it, of a, a significant comes from from uh, from the government and then a, a, an amount comes from the private sector i couldn't break down exactly how that works out but i might my understanding from a very base level is that the funding for judo canada approximately tripled after that medal wow somewhere in that realm in that realm so that's very significant um obviously and, and so you started to see a lot more athletes and then the second thing that you saw is you saw these people successful at a young age 
you saw Jessica Klimkate win the Cadet Worlds. You saw Louis Cribe-Gagnon win the Cadet Worlds. You saw Kyle Reese win the Junior Worlds. Jessica Klimkate, or uh, Kat BP, had two Junior World medals. Um, Louis, when he won the Cadet Worlds, beat Frank DeWitt in the final. So, and Louis, who didn't go to the Olympics, that's just one of many. So we started to see a lot more success. <laughs> as well as Shadi El Nahas, he started to have a lot of success at the junior European level. So we started not only funding seniors, but we saw more funding structure going to developing athletes and them having success. And when athletes have that success at a young age, they get the confidence that at 16, if I can beat anyone in the world, then why can't this continue? And we started to see athletes have a lot of success. There's a Keegan Young who won a huge amount of medals. There's uh, the Youth Olympics, or I believe it's called. Mm-hmm. He medaled at those at 81 kilos when he was a 73 kilogram fighter. So there's a lot of athletes that have had a lot of junior and cadet success in Canada, and they're starting to get to that senior stage as well. And I also believe that development of them going to more events, getting more experience at a young age has only helped the whole program as whole. Now, what does, what does funding for an athlete mean? Like, what does, what does that entail? Do they get a monthly, oops, sorry about that. Do they get a monthly stipend? Do they get, do they, uh, are they living with somebody? Is somebody sponsoring them? What does, what does that actually mean? So I'll talk to the senior rank the most, because that's the one I understand the most is sure. We call it part. So once they get to a certain level, they get carded and quote unquote. And so what it is, is they're, they have a salary, but not a huge salary. I couldn't tell you exactly what it is. They're not wealthy. Okay. But they get a, they get a set salary. And if they keep their standard, they keep that card, that salary, their international events are paid for. And then because of it's a government structure, they also get things like their post-secondary education is paid for oh, wow. while they're carded athletes. And I believe that's held for a number of years. So if you're a carded athlete for four years and you start your schooling during that period of time, I believe it's paid for until you finish. So that's the, so not a huge salary, but your trips are paid for. You have per diems when you're on those trips. So they survive. Montreal's not a, it's, it's a relatively inexpensive city to live in actually considering the size of it. Uh-huh. So it's uh, it covers more than their bills and they, some of them can save some money. It's, it's uh, a modest living I'll say, but then their, their international events are covered and their training camps, everything is covered for them to go. So they don't really have worries that they can't make it to events because they don't pick the events. They don't pay for the events. Um, and then they work out at the national training center, which obviously that's part of the funding structure. They have full-time physiotherapists. They have a full-time strength and conditioning coach. They have a beautiful strength and conditioning uh, facility within that building where a number of sports are located. So that's the, that's the basic. And it's not, it's not bonus. I, I've seen some things where it's sort of like you get money for going to an event in the States or getting results. It's not really like that. In Canada. This is your salary. These are the events we want you to go to. And we hope that leads to success. And if you have enough success, you keep your card. Wow. That that's fascinating. Is everybody, does everybody on the national team get, get some sort of uh, funding or some sort of stipend? Uh, there's a number of athletes. So you start with, I, I'll just use random numbers. So possibly 16 athletes are full-time carded. Let's say, let's just use that number. Yeah. Then you might have, <clears throat> then you might have 12 athletes that are partially funded. Then you might have some junior development cards that are partially funded. So I couldn't tell you exactly what those numbers are, okay. but, um, it's, it's a number of high level cards to lesser, to lesser is sort of the structure. Wow. That that's, that's really fascinating. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, not I, clearly, you know, the, the, the influx of money coming in from the government and, and even the private sector at times to, to support these athletes in a way where they don't have to worry about, you know, paying for trips or, or, you know, what they're getting for dinner. I mean, that, that's a huge deal. So I, would, would it be fair to say that most of these athletes do not even work a part-time job or, or even a full-time job while they're preparing for tournaments and stuff? So the, the, the carded athletes like Antoine Valois for it, Jay Jessica sure. Clint Pate, Arthur, Arthur Majelidon, they're not working. They're they not working. They just do judo. Okay. No. Now, some of the athletes that have been to events and have some results like uh, a Zach Burt, I know that some of those athletes definitely have had jobs. Um, and worked, but the highest level or highest tier of athletes, they, I don't know of any that have a, 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 even a part-time job on top of it. Wow. That that's fascinating. Yeah. I, I'm sure. Yeah. I, I'm sure it's that way in most other countries. I don't think it's that way in the United States. I know, I know a lot of, un, unless you're, you're, you're ranked a certain rank, you, you don't get that, that kind of support. Uh, I know some, some, right. a few athletes do, but for the overwhelming majority uh, probably do not, at least from the ones that I've spoken to personally and, 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 you know, other people that are in the know that I've, I've spoken with just, it's really interesting to see how different it is in, in Canada compared to the United States. I know, I know Canada deals with probably other, uh, other challenges that maybe people, right. people in the United States do not, but it's still interesting to, to, to really learn about this. I, I did, there's a lot I did not know. Right. Yeah. Every country has its own sort of political hurdles and things that are hiccups in the program and there's no perfect system. But um, at the moment, a lot of things about the Canadian system seems to be getting better. And and what I believe to be the case now, this hasn't been told to me, but I would not be surprised if Judo Canada's structure only goes significantly up from here. You've since the last funding structure, you've had two world champions and you've had another medal on top of it. And then you had two people medal and four people fight for medal at one Olympic Games. So um, I wouldn't be surprised if that could feed more success as we've oh, seen yeah. in some countries. Success begets success. Like uh, you look right. at the Israeli program in 2005 and you look at the Israeli program now while they didn't produce a medal in the individuals, this is a team just staff. Oh, it's a, um, yeah. Israel's amazing. I mean, they, they, they had a great showing in the, uh, in the team event. Right. Well, it just, I mean, you could, some of my favorite players to ever watch are on the Israeli team. And what you had is you had one individual in the early nineties or in Smaja who runs the program. You had another guy, Zivi in the late nineties, early two thousands. That was very successful at the minus hundred kilogram division. And then since Yarden Jerby's world championship, you've got, I mean, just Tohar Buttball and Saggy Mookie and Nelson Levy. And, and Tal uh, Flicker as well has had some success. Oh, my God. No, just, um, just an amazing program that just seems to produce talent at a level that shouldn't be the case. It's a country of only 8 million people or so. Yeah. And, and uh, what a program, you know. It's a, a place I would love to visit and pick the brain of the coaching staff uh, quite a bit. That would be a lot of fun. Does, does, does people like yourself and, and maybe others at Judo Canada, do, do you network with, with other uh, governing bodies around the world, maybe to get ideas as, as to, you know, what works in their, you know, what works for them or, or does Judo Canada just do their own thing? What works for, 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 you know, your country? Um, I, well, I can speak to 
Well, we've we have a history of bringing in international coaches. You do okay, yeah, and that, I guess so, that's where I was kind of getting at. So that's one level. So the head coach of Canada previously was formerly the head coach of Portugal, Michel Almeida. He was a European champion in two thousand. Um, me personally, uh, I'm such a, a fiend for information that I try to reach out and have a lot of conversations with people, and even having a more casual, not not in-depth conversation about the depth of development of judo or high-performance judo, like just an interesting judo conversation that I think you and I are having. Even just having conversations at a sort of, uh, I don't know how to say it. I don't, um, at just like a, a, just a general interest conversation leads me to starting to think about things in a deeper way often. Sure. So, so I, I try to, I try to have a lot of those conversations. So recently I just had a, a conversation with a gentleman, uh, Amidio. I can't think of his last name. He's Italian. So there's a there's a website that you guys you should check out called Judo Data. If you haven't, um, I'm a again I'm like a, a huge baseball fan. So statistics are are really valuable to me, and, and using them correctly and analyzing information can tell you a lot about how good people can be at judo. So Amidio has this website called judo data and it's sort of like what's a athlete's success rate of a technique what's their best technique information like that so i just recently had like a two-hour call with him where we just talked about different athletes success rate and why he thinks they're successful and so i try to have those conversations a lot because i just always wanting more information so i have a i have a long history of of picking the brains of coaches whenever i see them and and i just find those conversations fascinating to have and and I've had a lot of luck, I guess, ever since the 93 World Championships were in Canada. That would be the first time that I would have met Jason Morris. And I met the coaching staff of the Uzbekistani national team. I was only 10 years old, but they said yeah. hello to me. And I got to meet them. I got to meet Yamashita. And ever since then, I found it easy to sort of reach out to people. Judoka are especially humble when it comes to sports. And so when I ask those people questions, they often give me the time of day to have that conversation. And so I think that's a, like a really beautiful thing about judo and something that's really fascinating now you um before we started our uh, official conversation before i started recording this we were talking you were talking a little bit about baseball and statistics and such can you right. discuss a little bit uh what you were doing the work you were doing with athlete analyzer because i remember sure. i remember that's where you were writing some of your blog work on and you right. were working and this is a company based out of sweden what kind right. of work were you doing? Was it was it dealing athlete analyzer in a sense of statistics, uh, performance right. measurement, that kind of thing, or is it something completely different? Right. So um, I did work for them, just to be completely clear about the scenario. So I did work for them for a period of time. Um, so what happened is is there's a gentleman that released these statistics named Terry Loison. Now I'm a huge baseball fan. I used to watch the Montreal Expos. I'm a massive Blue Jays fan. And why I find baseball so interesting is they do a really good job of constantly evolving. So as an example that I like to give is baseball started showing, started creating the statistic for batting average in 1876, right? So that's not a counting stat, although it's a basic calculation. They were calculating batting average in 1876 and they started calculating pitchers ERA, how many runs they give up per, I mean, most people know that, but how many runs they give up in nine innings. They started calculating that in about 1912, Basketball, I believe, started doing a counting statistic, not even a, a calculation, for rebounds in around 1976. So it shows you how far ahead baseball is. Right. And money people, many people have seen the movie Moneyball, which is a great reference of trying to find value in baseball. How can we do things better? And there's a quote that I mentioned earlier that I love is, you can't beat the, 
You can't beat the Yankees on the field if you try to beat them by being the same way as them in the office. You can't mm-hmm. beat them out there by playing the same way. And so I've always thought that makes Japan sort of the Yankees of judo. So we have to be more efficient with how we develop and how we get to high-performance athletes. Well, the only way to be ob- objectively true is you need to have a sample because I can watch someone and go, this person looks like a great baseball player. And then all of a sudden you look at their batting average and they bat 150. Okay, they're not that good, right? That right. tells you. In judo, you historically don't have statistics to tell us that. You only have the eye test. And our eyes can lie to us because we're all subjective. Right. So I'm really good friends with someone or they're my student. I can be not on purpose, but I can be dishonest with myself about where along the line they are in development. And so large sample sizes of statistics and data is a really interesting thing to be objectively true. And so Thierry Loazon releases this data between 2012 and 2016 that shows the success rate of techniques. And one of the articles that got a lot of traction that a lot of people liked was what are the five most used throws in judo on the international stage? Eddie Seuinage, which is like a two-on-one Seuinage, Ipan yep. uh, Seuinage, Morote Seuinage, Sode Sodekomigoshi Uchimata, and Ochigari, I believe, somewhere in there. I might have added one, but those five throws basically are the most used throws in judo. Now, when I looked at that, the first thing you see is the average success rate of a throw is about 10%. Of those five throws, Uchimata is 10.5%, so it's right on the average. The Seuinage and Sodes are 6 to 7%. There's only one throw of the five. It's a backwards technique and it's Ouchigari and its success rate is 15%. So significantly higher than the average. And then if you look at the top 10 throws, Osoto is like 22% success rate and it's also backwards. So I thought that was really interesting and it's, it, um, it really changed the way that I thought about judo. We always think front to back, but then it makes you think, well, maybe we're doing that wrong. Maybe we should think a lot more about attacking back and then forward because no one wants to get bombed with a huge Koshi Kodobo. Right. Um, so I wrote an article sort of explaining that when I did the gentleman from athlete analyzer in Sweden, they created an app where you could load your matches and take that information by sort of tagging the action. And you could figure out your own baseball statistics. What's your success rate with Sewinage? How often do you lose against lefties? That kind of thing. And it's a, a really reasonably priced model. So, you know, a couple hundred bucks a year or whatever, and you can create these statistics for yourself. So they hired me to one help promote, um, this program. And then the second thing that they wanted me to do was give them feedback on where they could go with the program. So I did that. Uh, that was when I was creating a lot of this content. Again, this was a way to help keep my dojo open as a small private club trying to run a high performance center out of Toronto. So what do you think about, cause you talk about baseball evolving and, you know, in nowadays, uh, just as an aside, I, I maybe maybe the games passed me a little bit. I can't stand the shift. I, I cannot stand okay. the shift in baseball. Right. I, I'm one right. of those guys. I love the sport. I, I used to love it, but I don't love it as much. Right. I, I, right. I don't like the shift. I am a right. Rays fan being from Tampa Bay. Wow. Um, so I understand. Yeah, they are. And I understand all the little moves. That, I mean, now I do love the 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 opener strategy. I, I think that's brilliant. Right. right. So how do you take what do you think the next level of analyzing judo can be? Because because we've seen in the past really, what, 15 years or so since Madden took over the Rays in, in maybe 2006, he started implementing all of these crazy things to gain just a statistical advantage 
over the division rivals, Yankees and Red Sox. And it worked. You, you got a bunch right. of guys on their rookie deals go to the World Series in 2008 through right. through these type of analytics. What right. can how can judo how do you think judo can evolve with what what do you think the next level of analytics could possibly be? Right. So the one thing just as a baseball side note purely is uh, just as you mentioned, the shift, a really great book. If anyone is into reading books about sports is well, there's one called Big Data Baseball. And it's about how the Pittsburgh Pirates ended there. Who knows how long? I think it's like 30 years where they didn't make the playoffs. And a lot of the reason that you see the shifts the way that you do is because of the Pittsburgh development system. They started having pitchers throw sinking fastballs. Uh, they shifted their standard position. They started shifting a lot more and they got a, a famous catcher named Russell Martin, who's great at, um, at framing pitches. So they said after Moneyball, offense in any way is expensive. Let's just go purely defensive. They basically put a center fielder in left field, a center fielder in center field, a right fielder. Then they had everyone pitch uh, sinking fastballs so everything hit the ground and then they shifted in a better way in their, in their infield. So they only need to score three runs and they eventually make the playoffs. So that's a really great book explaining that. And so those are the types of things that I look at a lot. And I just go that sort of, I try to remove myself from judo and I say, how can I look at this? How can we do a better job or how can I personally coaching athletes, how can I do a better job in developing judo? And so the thing that I often think about is um, you see the success rate of left-handed athletes. You see the success rate of how often left-handed athletes are in, medal matches, but only about 25% of the athletes on tour left-handed. That's interesting. And so you look at things of weird body types. You have your hands connected to someone. So people might be more successful when they're especially short or especially tall. That's interesting to me. Daria Bilodid is a giant. In her I was position. just going to bring her up. Yeah, I was curious what you <laughs> thought. Uh, well, you're, you're right. So, right. And so my own athlete, Solomon, who medaled junior and senior nationals his last year competing at nationals, which was, I think, 2019. He's fights 81 kilograms and he's five foot five. Or you look at Christian Toth in the United States. I mean, not in the United States, sorry, in Hungary. Hungary, yeah. uh, Who's highly successful or Becca Gviniashvili. So weird body types, weird matchups makes for a really interesting thing for one. The second thing that I think about is well, when you can find information that's objectively true about the success of athletes, how can we utilize that better? And, and to me, when we start to look at throwing backwards, that's one that's really important. Or, or even small things like how can we be more efficient on the mats? So one rule as a, as a general, not to get too much into the weeds, but when we look at the way that we often do Nawaza, many dojos, and I'm not saying this is wrong and this is how we've always done it, but me trying to be more efficient. Is when you see Nawaza in a tournament, the exchange is typically under 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. And the exchange happens with one person in the turtle. That's typically the position. Maybe in a half guard, um, one leg's tied up. You see that position, or sometimes in a full guard. So typically, in a lot of dojos, they say, okay, it's time for Nawaza Randori. It's a four-minute round. You're on your knees. You bow to each other, and then you face each other. So you face each other on your knees. Well, this doesn't really occur. And so one way that I try to find that efficiency is I say, okay, instead of that, we're going to do 30 seconds of Nawaza. One person starts in the turtle and the other person starts with their hand on their back and they switch positions. And then I say, okay, after that, the next 30 seconds will be with half guard. The next 30 seconds will be full guard. Because I don't really care if you can fight someone on your knees, facing them on their knees, but I care if you can fight them in a position that actually occurs. Sure. All those, all those little things that can happen, those can add up to the big details. Um, A good friend of mine, again, Fraser Will, and these are, these are just the little efficiencies that I try to find. As I remember Fraser saying to me, 
the color of the mats that you compete on will affect how stressed you will be at a major event. And I never thought of that before, but if every major event, the mats are yellow and red mm -hmm. and your dojo is gray and blue, that's one little detail that you can match it more like a tournament. And so um, that's something that I find interesting because everything is about uh, another baseball thing is baseball players do amazing things because they play every single day. So a baseball game is just another baseball game, but a tournament for us, if you fly all the way to Europe, may be a big deal. It might have cost you $5,000 to go. Right. So how can we make it as comfortable as it can be in Europe? Um, so sort of how can you mimic a tournament as much as possible? How can you make people as relaxed as possible? So those are the types of things that I think we need to look at in North America that we may not always look at and they may not seem the most obvious, but how can we make it as comfortable as possible? Because for us, competing in Europe is a big deal. That is a big step. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And it does cost us a lot more. We do have the time change. So that's, those are the, those are the little things I guess that I look at. I hope that sort of answers the, the question. It, it does because it, because it was the little things that, that, that had to happen. Uh, it, you know, just going back to the Rays, for example, it's the little things that, that the Rays did to try and generate success on the baseball field. Right. And, and it's, it's interesting. I mean, just the, the color of the mats, I, I would have never thought about that, but that's right. It could be, it could mean the difference of somebody performing better than they may, may have if they were practicing on just whatever gray, gray and blue mats. That's right. It. Yeah. One thing. Yeah. Like one thing that stands out to me is I remember I went to a club tournament and I competed a lot as a child and I went to a club tournament when I was about 10. And for some reason at this tournament, it was a small site and the mat area that we competed on was really small. And I remember being really stressed out. I, I don't even remember this until now, but I remember being really stressed out at the tournament because the matter was so small. How am I supposed to compete against someone if I take two steps and I'm on the floor and my dad's going, hey, calm down, you know? Uh, everyone's fighting on the same surface, but it just really got to me, yeah. you know? And so you think of it that way, like all those little things, if you've never competed in front of a crowd before, that's something you have to deal with. If you've never competed with someone refing and you don't compete very often, you know, a tournament shouldn't feel that special because it's overwhelming. You want it to feel like it's just another day on the job. So how can you make your dojo feel like the site? And then we live in dojos, right? We're training in them all the time. If we can make that in some ways feel more like a tournament, then all of a sudden the tournament feels more like the dojo. It feels more like home and dojos to us are our second home. So those are the, those are the things that I find, like how can, how can we do those things a little better? How can we make athletes as comfortable as possible so nothing is overwhelming? Because like, like everyone's heard, um, high performance sports is a game of inches. So all those little things, like, do you keep your gi tidy? Well, if your gi's tidy or it's hard to grip. Okay. So that's a small detail. Sure. Um, when I was, when I was speaking to Adam Creek, he's an Olympic champion in the eight man row. And he said before every major race, literally the entire team would pee out of the side of the boat before the race started. And I was like, why? Well, the boat's about three pounds lighter. If all eight guys take a, <laughs> go to the bathroom before they get in the boat, then all the, the boat's three pounds lighter. That's a very small detail. That may not mean much, but it also psychologically means something. So yeah, that's, those are the little things. And if you do all of those little things, then you're going to have the confidence. I'm doing something they're not doing. You know, every Saturday we treat it like it's a tournament. Maybe no one else is doing that. Um, I make sure I keep my gi tidy. Maybe it's a little harder for you to grip. The, all these little wins, even if they're not really wins, they're psychological wins that make you more confident. And confidence is huge for athletes. That's really fascinating, Joe. So what would you do, for example, 
you've got an athlete, they, they, they are on the national team. Then all of a sudden they're going to the Paris grand slam for the first time, 14,000 mm-hmm. plus people watching. Like how right. do you even prepare somebody who's maybe used to hearing, you know, mom and dad screaming on the sidelines, all of a sudden right. you, you've got 14,000, you know, uh, French people, you know, cheering, you know, their home crowd right. heroes and stuff like that. Boy, how, how would you even begin to prepare an athlete for something like that? Right. So <clears throat> again, um, to even go to that event, they've obviously competed a, a great deal. So that's the first sure. thing. So they're and used they, to some kind of, right. Right. So, so they're used to some kind of crowd and they are used to some level of, of stress and success to get to that place. But again, I would just think, okay, so how can we do things to mimic the scenario they're going to be in? So first thing is, is I would definitely have them practice, not every day, but I would have them practice with someone on the mat in a perfect scenario. Why not have that person on the mat in a suit that's refing as if it's a ref match? Cool. That feels more like a tournament. Yeah. Right. Have that person call the match, have that person call mate, have that person give them penalties if they're not doing their job, have someone coaching the athlete against them just so that they're used to it. Have someone sitting in a chair and coaching them. Why not pipe in crowd noise so they get used to hearing just this sort of rumble as they compete? Sure. Um, I, I haven't done all of the things that I'm suggesting, but why not look at it? Why not say, is this potentially true? Why not prepare to a- another thing that I've always found interesting that we typically do is most people do judo during weeks at seven o'clock at night, right? Mm-hmm. That's when we typically perform. And most tournaments happen on Saturday or Sundays at nine in the morning, depending. Sometimes it's the afternoon, but if it's a high-performance tournament, say a national championships, typically the athletes start in the morning. Well, we are physiologically and mentally prepared to compete on a Wednesday night at 7. How often does that happen in life? It really doesn't. So having uh, what I've always tried to do as a rule is I try to have judo start on Saturday mornings at 9.30 or 10 o'clock. I've often had the athletes work out their own warm-up routine. So when they go to a tournament, you're not, they're not figuring out how to warm up. They practice their warm-up routine that they do on their own before they train every Saturday. And my Saturday mornings often start, once you are warm, we go into really high-intensity competitive randori sessions. And the reason for that is if you're ready to train, every week you know the hardest training is Saturday morning, then that tournament feels more normal. Whereas if your hardest training is Wednesday night, while that's only a small detail, we rarely compete at Wednesday nights at seven. Yeah. So adjust for the clock. What time is the Tournoi de Paris happening compared to Texas or whatever time you're in? Get them ready. So when they arrive, they're used to training or competing at that time. Those are the types of things that I would look at that could be small physical advantages or psychological advantages. Fascinating. Boy, that, that's really, really fascinating. It's just so so different to hear something like this. Or, may, or maybe this is the norm up in Canada that, that this is how you all do you know, look at coaching and I just, it's just something that I'm not exposed to because I'm just a, just a club level, you know, kind of guy. Right. I, I do it for fun. You know, not, I'm definitely right. not a high performance coach at all. And, you know, I, I used to be a, a, a heck of an athlete, but not in judo and you know running, but, um, right. but yeah, but, but it just, that's really interesting that that perspective on things. So, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's necessarily um, the average Coach isn't exactly that way, but, um, but you know, that's, that's the other thing that's been interesting in my life. I've, I played a lot of sports and then even like at the Olympics, like I was saying, my conversation with Adam Creek about what they did for, in terms of peeing out of the boat or the other thing that I found interesting. And, and this is where my brain just constantly goes is when it comes to baseball, I put that in my mind, or you look at the explosion of how basketball changed 
you know, basketball became a different sport in the last five years yeah. because of the use of analytics and the understanding of the value of a three-point shot. So if we want to keep acting like statistics don't help in sports, you, I mean, if you, if you don't play a different way than formerly Golden State, but these teams just blow you out. So I'm constantly trying to find that kind of information. And, and from a, we talked earlier about the importance of technique. When I talked to Adam about rowing, rowers row one way. They, they don't all of a sudden do a right-hand turn. It's a straight race. Yeah. So I said, when you're at that Olympic level, how often do you work on the technique of your row? keeping in mind that every stroke ideally is the same. So this is an Olympic champion rower. And he said 30 minutes to an hour every day. And they train six days a week, 30 minutes to an hour was based on technique. So again, you think about that and that's one stroke. And you think about how many different techniques we use in judo, why I'm so um, obsessive about any gains we make in technique, we don't want to lose. And so those are the types of things that really stick with me is what do they do that's interesting? Another one is I spoke to a guy that's formerly the captain of the Canadian national rugby team. And it's obvious, uh, obvious answers to questions sometimes are too obvious. So when he was 26 years old, he was playing professionally in Italy. He's done rugby his whole life. He's the captain of the Canadian team. He then hired a running coach, which is almost too obvious. It's almost hilarious to think he never had one or that, that's not something to think of. I've never heard of a soccer player hiring a running coach. I've never heard of a rugby player or a, or a field lacrosse player hiring him, but he hired a running coach running efficiently. Of course, you know, in rugby or soccer, that's like right. 75% of the game. Well, all of a sudden he felt like a far better athlete. So sometimes even things that um, are so obvious, we sort of miss, like that has to make you a better player. He said it was the best decision he ever made in his life at rugby was hiring a running coach so that he could sprint more efficiently. And so some of the answers to some of our problems can be very obvious, but we might get, you know, lost amongst other, amongst other issues or, or just sort of doing the same thing because we just are used to the grind that we have. Well, Josh, listen, I really appreciate your time uh, coming on the podcast. This is just, has been just a, a, a fabulous interview. I, I just, I wasn't sure what to expect because uh, I, we had never spoken previously, but um Right. I really appreciate this. I really appreciate all the information that you're sharing uh, with the listeners. Cause I, I got listeners around the world. Half of them are in the United States, but I got, I got quite a bit in Canada and some in the UK, Australia, and, and even in countries where, where English isn't the predominant language. So um, uh, I I'm sure the, the listeners get a kick out of this one. So I thank you very much for your time, Josh. No problem. Thanks for having me. And hopefully we can do it again sometime. And uh, I had a great time. All right, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Josh Hagan. I'd like to thank Josh once again for taking time out of his busy schedule to join me on my podcast. I thought it was really interesting to hear uh, Josh talk about Judo Canada and their uh, you know, elite-level competitor program and how organized it really is. They, they really have a, an, an excellent program up there. And I, I was really interested finding out that it all really sprung from that bronze medal that they earned uh, back in 2012 in London. And it kind of makes me wonder, well, what happened in 2016? I mean, maybe that's just a, a, a Canadian thing up there where they get a lot of funding for earning a medal at the Olympics. But in 2016, USA Judo earned a gold medal and a silver medal. So I'm kind of left wondering, does the U.S. government or the United States Olympic Committee not 
give more money to the organizations that produce metals? Again, I really don't know anything about that. Perhaps that's just a Canadian thing, but I'm sure other countries treat their organizations the same way, where if you're producing medal-winning athletes, you, you should get money from from whatever gov- you know government subsidies or whatever the case may be. Now, I think most of us know that USA Judo at one time had a lot of money in their coffers and really former presidents or I should say former CEOs misappropriated those funds. And and there was a lot of shady business that happened prior to 2016 that really harmed the national governing body. I really don't want to get into the specifics of that in that podcast, in my podcast. In fact, that's a topic I've stayed away from really over the past five years because I, I don't know much about it, but I do know that enough damage has been done that it, it's almost irreparable almost all right so moving along I wanted to cover before I end this podcast I know it's a long one I wanted to cover a couple of things that are on the calendar starting with the IGF world tour things pick up again uh in 16 days as of this recording from September 24th to 26th will be the Zagreb Grand Prix in Zagreb Croatia I'm really looking forward to that event because I'll be interested to see who shows up at this event. And really, the March to Paris 2024 starts in in just two weeks, just about two weeks. That's right. For you Total Recall fans out there, I know I'm dating myself now. And something else that I wanted to bring up um, that was made to, that was brought to my attention by my good friend Tay Bryn Lee. In the United States, there is a new combat fight league called New Way Combat. It's an organization that that either manages or promotes or runs wrestling tournaments, Brazilian jiu-jitsu tournaments, arm wrestling tournaments, and judo tournaments. So I went to newwaycombat.com. That's N-U-W-A-Y combat.com. So to take a look at the judo tournaments that are coming up, and there's quite a number. There's there's six on the calendar so far, and it looks like it's sponsored by Judo Fanatics. Now, I have no idea what kind of rule set is going to be at these contests, but the next tournament coming up uh, from New Way Combat is in Laughlin, Nevada on September 18th. After that, on October 2nd, is in San Diego, California. On October 16th, you got another tournament in Dells, Wisconsin. On November 6th, you got it uh, a tournament in San Diego, California. On December 11th, in Reno, Oklahoma. And on December 18th, in Boise, Idaho. Now, this is the first time I've heard of this. So, I don't know if everybody else in our judo community in the United States is fully aware of this comp- of this tournament. But this is the first time I've heard of it. So if it's the first time for me, I'm guessing it's going to be the first time for some of you as well. So if you're interested, and I know I got a lot of listeners out in California, you got two tournaments over the next two months right in San Diego. So that's the extent of what I know about this this um, New Way Combat. If you want to learn more, I would suggest you go to the website and reach out to them. I guess they are in partnership with uh, Bernardo Faria, who's a... Uh, a very famous Brazilian jiu-jitsu coach. That guy seemingly, seemingly partners with everybody. Love to meet him one day. Anyway, 
I think I'm going to wrap things up here. I think I'm going to wrap things up here for you diehards that are made it this far in the podcast. I am going to have an after party. Got a lot to talk about there, but I'll keep it under 15 minutes for sure. And for those of you who may be new listeners, the after party is just a little segment that I do after the main part of the podcast. It is not judo related, though on my particular after party, I am going to talk a little bit judo on on a personal level for me. Uh, So... I thought it was a little bit interesting. I think you might be interested to hear that. And of course, typical stuff, what movies I've seen, what shows I'm watching, that kind of thing. So I'm going to end things here. So with that, I hope you all have a great day. I hope you all have a great rest of the week. Train hard. Stay safe out there. And until next time, I'm out. Open Gangnam Style. Gangnam the after party so there's a couple of things that i wanted to talk about in the after party it's not necessarily shows first things first i wanted to share with you all that for the first time in my life but not my, my life for the first time in all the time that i've been training over the past 15 years i am training and lifting weights at the same time well, not at the same time. I'm the same week. I go to the gym three times a week. I go to the club a couple times a week because that's all they got locally here. And I've got a pretty basic strength training routine that has produced really great results for me at my age. And, you know, truth be told, years ago, I couldn't afford to pay a membership at a gym and pay. A membership dues at a judo club but now that my life is a little bit different which I'll get to that in in a moment as well I'm able to do both and let me tell you what a difference in training mostly in Brazilian jiu-jitsu I still haven't gotten around to do much judo yet because really I, I've just been extremely busy since I've moved up here honestly and 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 going to a club that's five minutes away is just it's just easy for me But the change in my training and my endurance after adding weightlifting is just remarkable. It's night and day. And let me tell you, for the first time in my life, I mean, I've always been fit. I've always looked good, at least I think. But now when I look at myself in the mirror, I actually say to myself, wow, finally, after all these years, I'm really happy with how I look. I look great. I'm about 150 pounds right now, and I know at 150, I have never been stronger in my life. Now, I've been stronger, but I was weighing in, tipping the scales at about 175, 180. I mean, I was strong, but I was a chunky monkey. But but now, like, I really don't even have to flex to see my abs. And my lats now, I'm pretty sure that if I jumped off a bridge that my lats would would catch enough air that I could fly. I'm almost certain of that. And listen, even though I'm just a recreational judoka and a recreational jujitsu guy, most everybody at my club 
is, is bigger than me, heavier than me, stronger than me, and most of the time younger than me. But you know what? Now that I've been lifting weights for the past three and a half months, four months or so, like your str- their strength doesn't matter. Like you, you could, you could outweigh, like, like I got some training partners that outweigh me by 60, sometimes 80 pounds. I got one guy that's like outweighs me by about 180 pounds. Like it really doesn't matter. Well, the 180 pound guy. Yeah, that, that matters. That that's, that's tough to overcome 300 plus pounds that, but, but guys that are like, you know, years ago I would be like, Oh, you got 20 pounds on me. You got such an advantage. Now it's like, it doesn't matter. Like I, I got, I got guys that I roll with that got 60 pounds on me. And like, you know, if they tap me out, it's not because they're strong. It's just, they were better than me because like, you know, setting frames like before, if I'm trying to shrimp out or push away, like my arms, like trying to maintain a frame, might my, my gas out in, in 30 to 45 seconds. But nowadays, like it takes minutes before I get tired. It like it's I just can't believe after all these years that I've been doing judo and, and, and Brazilian jiu-jitsu that I never bothered to mix in strength training. And and it's just made such a tremendous difference. And I encourage you all, if you're not doing that, I'm sure all of you that are listening work hard in the club. But if you're not if you're not lifting weights in your off days, you're really missing something. And like I said before, I've lifted weights in the past and I've done judo. Obviously, I've been doing judo all this time, but I've not done the two together. It's always been one or the other. When I when I was taking a break from judo because of injury, I was lifting weights and 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 vice versa. So the strength training has just been phenomenal. And I got a really simple routine. It just it's just a I, I probably do two or three exercises in the gym that work my core body parts, and that's it. At the gym, I, I, I break it up between chest and triceps, biceps and backs, and shoulders and legs. That's all I do. I'm probably in the gym for no more than 40 minutes, but it's made such a tremendous difference. So yeah, I'm stating the obvious. If if you're training and you're not lifting weights, mix in some weights in there. You will benefit immensely. And you'll end up looking good in the process if your nutrition is spot on. Which my nutrition's actually pretty good. It's always been pretty good, not great. Like I said earlier in the episode, I'm currently sipping on a glass of scotch whiskey. But that's just my thing because I enjoy it. But the biggest change for me nutritionally is is stopping. Uh, I, I'm no longer eating cereal at night. Like at night, I get a bowl of Golden Grams or some some uh, some raisin brand though I I'm a sucker for that stuff but but the worst one is is special K with strawberries that that stuff I I'm addicted to that stuff I I, I stopped buying cereal for myself at night um and it's made a difference it just just cutting out those probably what 300 calories with with of, of sugar and and milk you, you know so it's probably not good for me but I cut that out I I've cleaned up my diet a little bit I'm not a I'm not a diet freak or anything like that I'll I'll have a cheeseburger every once in a while and maybe a slice of pizza. But um, other than that, I'm taking care of myself nutritionally. So, all right, enough of that. I watched Shang-Chi over the weekend, the new Marvel movie. I had no idea what this movie was going to be about. I went in that movie with some hesitation simply because I didn't know what the, I didn't know the history of the movie. I didn't want to know the history of the movie. And what the origin story is or anything like that. This movie, 10 out of 10. It is amazing. 
I don't know if I can put that movie in my top five of MCU movies, but it's definitely a 10 out of 10. I rank this movie up there. So, so my favorite Marvel movies has been Iron Man, Winter Soldier, Spider-Man Homecoming, Thor Ragnarok, which I loved. And what am I missing? Guardians of the Galaxy. Those are my top five, or those have been my top five. And I I rank them, you know, on a scale of one to ten, there's a ten out of ten for me. But Shang-Chi is right up there with them. And if I I was forced to remove a, a movie from my top five, it might be Iron Man. Now, of that top five, the best of them for me is is still Winter Soldier. I, I that is my favorite uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe movie. But I tell you what, after watching a lot of the Disney Plus shows, the um, you know, not not just WandaVision, but Loki, which was kind of a weird show for me, and then seeing the Black Widow movie, which was a disappointment for me. That that movie should have come out before uh, Infinity War. Well, a war. I mean, I'm sorry, not Infinity War, Endgame. That movie, Black Widow should have come out before Endgame. I thought it was a little disappointing. So after Loki, after WandaVision, I, I liked those shows. I, I liked Loki, but it wasn't, it wasn't as, it wasn't great for me. It just wasn't. And then Black Widow, and I'm like, oh, crap. This Phase 4 is going to suck. Uh, no, uh, no, I, I'm wrong about that. If if Shang Chi is a glimpse of what's to come, this next phase of Marvel is going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to the Eternals. I don't even know what it's about. I don't want to know what it's about. I'm not going to read the backstory and all of that. Just let me be entertained by the movie, and and that's it. I'm not going to buy the comic books to get caught up on what the the origin stories are for whatever characters they're going to have in there. I I, I don't care. I'm looking forward to the Eternals because I I just thought Shang Chi was just great. It, w- it was amazing. So if you haven't watched it, go ahead and watch it. It was the first time I went to a movie theater in years. I went to my local movie theater, which was really nice. It didn't have the stadium seating and it didn't have the reclining seats or whatever like that. But it was still a really nice theater. It was nice to get out. I think there was only ten other people in the theater because I went to the to the afternoon matinee or whatever. But Really nice theater here in Mariana, and I enjoyed it. And if you haven't seen it yet, if you haven't watched it yet, be aware that there are two end credit scenes. All right, so what else have I been watching? I watched a show called The Outer Banks on Netflix. I, I, caught up, I, I got caught up on season one and two. The Outer Banks is pretty good, but that show annoyed me quite a bit. I would have liked that show a lot more if it was adults that were the main characters, but since they were teenagers, teenagers just do teenage things, and teenage things annoy the hell out of me. And I don't want to. I don't want to say more about that because I'll give it away. I'll just. I'll just tell you this one scene where it's like they end up on some island, some place. They get stranded out there. I. I, I don't want to give too much detail, but like the first thing they think of is like, hey. Let's go. We don't have surfboards. Let's go body surfing. Like to me, I'm thinking to myself, well, if I was on an island all by myself and I got stranded there, the first thing I'm doing is looking for food. And believe me, I love body surfing. In fact, I recently bought myself swim fins just so I could get a a good launch on the waves. That's how much I love body surfing. I really love it. And unfortunately for me, I did not go out 
to to the Gulf Coast when uh, Hurricane Ida was out there because I was dealing with severe back spasms. There's no way I would put myself out there at risk uh, with four to six foot swells, uh, body surfing with back spasms. That that would be suicidal. But I love body surfing. I got the swim fins to prove it. And even in that situation, if I was stuck on an island, I'm looking for food. I'm making myself uh, shelter. I'm digging a hole for a toilet before I go body surfing. That's just the responsible thing to do. But kids aren't responsible. And this show is full of kids doing irresponsible things. But there's another show that I watched on Apple TV called The Mosquito Coast, which was fantastic. So I'm watching that. Billions is finally back on after a year hiatus due to COVID. And Paul Giamatti looks like he lost 30 pounds. And there's this excellent show on, gosh, I don't even know what it's on, Stars or something? I have no idea. Called The Godfather of Harlem, which features one of my favorite actors. And now his name's escaping me. Who, who the heck is that? He played uh, in, that, in that movie with, the, with the, the African dictator. Oh, what the hell? Oh, For- Forrest Whitaker. Goodness gracious. Amazing show if you haven't watched it. And I don't know who the actor is that plays Malcolm X, but man, he's doing a fantastic role. And I feel like I've talked about this before. I, I may have talked about this in the past, um, in, in in a couple episodes ago. But but the, but the the they they went on a hiatus as well, and they came out with the last four episodes just about a month ago. So I'm catching up on that. Oh, and there's really there's this really cool show on Hulu called Nine Perfect Strangers. If you haven't watched it. It's from the author that wrote the book, uh, what was it called, um, Little Big Lies or Big Little Lies or something like that. It was an HBO show. It was also a book. Yeah, it was Big Little Lies. So episodes are still being released on Hulu for this show, and I highly recommend it. All right, so let's see. Is there anything else? Uh, my son went to college. That's awesome. And in case you're wondering, no, I didn't blubber like a buffoon. When I dropped him off at school, I was a little emotional. I'll admit that, but I didn't sit there and cry. My dad cried when he dropped me off at the MEP station uh, when I went into the Marine Corps. I think that was like the one of three times I've seen my dad cry in my entire life. So yeah, now I, I officially have two adult children who are living on their own. And I'm very proud of both of them. All right, that's going to do it for me. I'm out.